0: Hi, and welcome to Season 3 of Emetophobia Help. I'm your host, Anna Christie, licensed therapist, author, and recovered emetophobic. Trigger warning for these podcasts will be words and sometimes a story, but I try to make sure they're not too gross. For you therapists who are listening, Dr. David Russ, child psychologist, and I have a new resource website for you at emetophobia.net, and there are self-help instructions there as well if you're looking for exposure resources. Um, People with emetophobia, I have a new Facebook group that I made called Emetophobia No Panic, which has very strict rules and is more about sharing success, success, therapy information and so on, more so than the other groups. If you're enjoying this podcast or you find it helpful, you can buy me a coffee for a couple of bucks or a couple of pounds. Just scroll down in the notes to see the link. Okay, so I'm here today with Sierra, who is not too far from me in Vancouver, but she's in Spokane, Washington, which is sort of around about Seattle, Washington, if you're not from Washington. So welcome, Sierra.
1: Hi, and thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Well, it's great to
0: have you here. So how about we start with just um, your story of emetophobia, like how long you've had it and what your childhood was like.
1: Yeah, so I don't know how common this, this is, but I didn't realize I had emetophobia until maybe my mid-20s. Although I definitely had it long before that. Um, I can't tell you when it started. I imagine I was probably a preteen. Um or a child when it started. I think that it was interesting because I thought that the way I felt about vomiting was the way that everyone else thought. I really thought everyone was scared. Everyone felt that drop in their stomach and had to leave the room when someone said the word vomit or I threw up. Um, So I thought it was normal. And I think in my teens at some point, There was one of my friends who said something like, oh, you know, sometimes I get up in the morning and I just throw up because I haven't had breakfast yet. And she said it so nonchalantly that I thought, oh, my gosh, this isn't normal. This isn't normal to be so scared. Mm. Um, And, you know, I can trace back my emetophobia to a couple different Things in my life. Um, One of those was my um, grandmother being diagnosed with cancer when I was um, preteen. And my mom telling me about chemo and what it does to you. So telling me that. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So she was basically telling me that my grandma, who had terminal cancer, was going to die and Mm. that they were treating her with chemo, which would make her throw up. Um, Oh, gosh. Yeah, it just seemed like the worst possible thing to me as a kid. I mean, number one, you're going to die and then you're going to go out sick. You're going to go out throwing up. (laughs) Yeah,
0: right, right. Um, Which isn't really how it, it, I mean, did you kind of follow your grandmother through that journey
1: of hers? Was she very sick?
0: What kind of happened to her?
1: Well, she did pass away uh, two years later, but I was so scared that I didn't really get involved in anything that was going on medically with her and she was in a different state which made it hard
0: oh yeah yeah i'm sorry to hear that uh, about your grandma um and it's not a nice way to die of anything i guess but i mean there are worse things to die of than cancer to be completely honest um but Mm -hmm. but it's not very nice that's for sure and some people have um you know, they're vomiting with chemo and some people don't. Um and so, you know, any of our listeners are out there freaking out because they they're afraid of a cancer diagnosis. Like often they have such good antiemetic drugs now that often you're not sick with chemo. Mm. And I have a sneaking feeling that emetophobics are probably not going to be sick with a me- with chemo because we don't get we just don't vomit very often. Uh, you know, right. and I don't know whether that's a cause, a cause of our metaphobia, because we like naturally avoid it all the time, or whether it's an effect of being too scared and then we stop ourselves somehow. So I don't know. But yeah. Um, and so you were, you were pretty young then, like a preteen. You don't look very old now to me.
1: Um, <laughs> are
0: you in your 20s? Like I don't know how old you are.
1: Uh, no, I just turned 31, actually.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Well, folks, you're not going to see her, but she's young and beautiful with <laughs> gorgeous, gorgeous ginger hair, which I would love to have that color hair. But alas, um, I, I had Auburn and now I'm just going for like some weird blonde thing that I'm just as glad no one can see. But anyway.
1: Uh, I think it looks yeah, great. So. so. It,
0: it needs a little help on the, on the, I need to get it. Yeah. Anyway, we're not here to talk about my hair. Uh, Sorry. I went off on that tangent. Um, But speaking of hair, actually there's a segue because you you would, you had told me in an email to me that you also suffer from trichotillomania, which is a long word that a lot of people don't know what it means, but it's a, it's about, and it's an anxiety disorder uh, where you feel this compulsion to pull at your hair? Can you talk a little bit about your experience of? Um, shall I say it again?
1: Trichotillomania. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, we'll call it trick for mm. short. Um, most people do oh, call it excellent. trick. Excellent. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I um, I can tell you exactly when this started. Um, when I was 15 years old, um, I can't tell you. I, I don't know exactly what triggered it. But I started pulling out the hair around my hairline um and that was a very stressful time in my um family um i we were uh, my mom was having her last child and she ended up passing away very young
0: oh my um, gosh oh no oh yeah,
1: so gosh. I think That's that wonderful. the whole family environment around around that time was very stressed um there were some issues going on and I just found myself doing this thing. I, I found myself pulling my hair out and I thought, I don't want to do this. Why? Why am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, but once it started, it, I just kept doing it. It was like, you know, it's, it's related to biting your nails and it's related to picking mm-hmm. your skin, which is also known as dermatillomania. Yeah. Um, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's related to, um, biting the inside of your cheeks. There's a lot of disorders Mm -hmm. close to trichotillomania that are called body focused, repetitive behaviors. Um, yes. Yeah. And you know, people don't really know why they do it. Um, so it's a very stressful experience to have it, especially because it usually starts when you're, in your preteens or teen years, when you're worried about how you look and about attracting, you know, guys or girls, yeah. or you know, um, yeah, so that, like Anna said, that's a that's a an anxiety disorder. So it's related to stress, um, but it can also happen when you're stressed and happy. So you can have a lot going on in your life, hmm. exciting. And you will mm-hmm. want to self-soothe, self, self um, soothe, self-regulate by touching your right. skin or pulling your hair. Um, yeah. And so my experience, you know, in my early 20s, um, I had a, a lot of anxiety at that time. And again, I didn't realize it was a metaphobia, because I, I never made that connection. But I... Got so stressed and was so fearful of throwing up that I um, pulled my hair enough that I had to completely shave it and wear a wig for about three oh years. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Wow.
0: So uh, I, I was going to say, you know, your hair looks perfect to me right now. So I was about to say, well, you couldn't have had it that bad. But wow. Yep, it was. That's really yeah. severe. Yeah. It was severe,
1: Um and, uh, you know, I was trying to take control back because I felt out of control. I wanted my hair mm-hmm. desperately, but I felt like, you know, I can get it under control. I can't pull it if it's shaved. Um, so, yeah, I wore a wig about right. four years. I met my husband. Mm-hmm. My life got a lot better, and I decided to grow it back. Um, so what you're seeing is my natural hair now. Um, mm-hmm. It's... Trichotillomania is still something I deal with. Um, I've just learned to cope with it a little bit better than I did in the past.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: I just saw a
0: program on TV last night. I have to confess. It's like a guilty pleasure program. Um, It's called something about bad bad hair day or something, Mm -hmm. but it's just got, it follows these different doctors that people go with various hair kind of disorders, but someone went with trichotillomania and she only pulled out her eyebrows. And unfortunately she was at a point where they would not grow back. So she had like no eyebrows at all. And I have heard of people pulling their eyelashes out and, and eyebrows as well, sometimes as hair on their head, but she only pulled out her eyebrows. So she had to actually have a hair transplant the way that men have hair transplants where they take the little hair follicles from the back of her head and they had to, so her eyebrows, if she doesn't trim them all the time, they would just grow continually now, like, like your hair, but she looked fantastic when this doctor was done with her, but she had also, overcome pretty much overcome her, her trick, her trick. Yes. Let's call it mm-hmm. trick. Cause I'm sure I'm going to yeah. bu- bumble it up. If I keep saying it. Um, yeah. That must've been a really, you know, like, yes, it was a stressful time for you, but it must've been, you know, really terrible in other ways when you had to shave your head and wear a wig and not, yeah. be, and not be able to pull at your hair even. Yeah.
1: You know, it's funny because I, I don't. It's like when I couldn't do it, the urge to do it went away. It wasn't like I was still trying to pull uh-huh. my hair when it was too short to pull. Um, I think the I think the hardest thing for me was um, working jobs. So feeling like, you know, I wore a wig and it looked almost like my natural hair does. It was like an auburn color and right. kind of long. And some people couldn't tell, some people could, um, it just gave me a lot of anxiety around work. Um, so if I switched my wig, you know, people right. who clearly tell that this wasn't my natural hair mm-hmm. and I didn't want to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, cause I was, yeah. it's, it's something that's pretty private. Um, you know, I choose carefully who I, who I want to share that information with.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So mm-hmm. that was, yeah, I, it was, it was tough stuff. Yeah, I, I think there would be a
0: lot of shame around it. And, and there is with metaphobia as well. I was talking to um, a person the other day who was just having a memory of like having to run away from a group of her friends and hide in the bathroom because of something that they were doing. And just how much shame that she felt for having a metaphobia and feeling so stupid, you know, like, this is, this is ridiculous. I can't even be out there with them. And they were all having fun. And, you know um, there's so much shame. I mean, we're trying to get the stigma of mental illnesses, you know, to We're trying to do away with the stigma. We're making some progress in some parts of the world, but not all. But uh, we're certainly not there yet, you know, because people can. But it helps to have podcasts like this and just hear other people's experiences, because I'm sure there are other metaphobic people who have trick and maybe they don't even know there's a name for it. And they think they're the only one that is doing it. I mean, I think. I talked maybe in my first season with some people who were cutting Mm -hmm. and other self-harming behaviors, which are also very common. So how has the metophobia, I mean, because of all of this, I mean, you have this trauma as a 15-year-old. And then you have also, I think it's very traumatic to have to shave your head. And, and go to a wig. Um, and you still have emetophobia at the same time. So how did you deal with your emetophobia through all of this?
1: Well, I, in the beginning, um, like I said, I didn't know that I had emetophobia. So I thought I was, I actually confused my emetophobia with having some sort of anxiety disorder mixed with digestive issues in that I would eat food and I would feel sick and I would just panic without realizing I was panicking about feeling sick. Um, Mm. and that was like the root cause of the issue. So I thought that I, I was having, you know, IBS or maybe I was gluten intolerant, uh, things like that. I was going to the doctors all the time. And, um, eventually someone said, you know, I think you have anxiety. Like, I don't think that this Mm -hmm. is about your digestive system. I think this is mainly about your anxiety. And I didn't believe him um, Mm. until I went home and read. I went online, I think, and read some experiences about people with anxiety. And I was like, okay, I've got that for sure. I'm scared all the time. I'm panicking about little tiny Mm. things. Um, But it wasn't until a few years later that I really twist it back to, oh my gosh, every time I'm panicking, I feel like I'm going to throw up. Um, why is that? Right. And then I kind mm-hmm. of tied it back to those events in my childhood. And, you know, when I was a kid, if I heard the word throw up, I'd have to leave the room. Um, again, didn't realize mm-hmm. that was emetophobia. My parents weren't very emotionally open. So I didn't talk to anyone mm-hmm. about it. Um, so...
0: Yeah.
1: That you know through through this time I think I would say in the beginning um in my teenage years when I shaved my head I did not handle my emetophobia very well at all. I panicked all the time. I would end up in the ER um because I was scared oh, to throw no. up um because I didn't really know what was going on. And I still have a metaphobia now, um but mm-hmm. it's gotten Better And mostly now revolves around, I don't want to feel nauseated and I don't want to throw up. Not, it's not, right. I don't care about what anyone else is doing. I don't care if they're throwing up. I don't want to do it. Okay. Um, so I, yeah. I panic yeah. when I feel sick.
0: Right. And that's probably the most common form of emetophobia. Mm-hmm. But often, often people are triggered by other people or anything to do with vomit. Like there are lots of people that can't listen to this podcast because I save on it, or we do and we talk about it, um, which is really sad. But, you know, people are at different stages. It's just like my Facebook group where, where I'm sure you um, you're on. You must mm-hmm. be on my in my group. Yeah. And, you know, that's a group where where we're we're writing words out, you know, and not and lots of people can't. Like they say, oh, I'd love to be in your group, but I can't. I just can't look at that word, you know, or any word that has anything to do with it, or or even talk about it at all. So, um, so you're still trying to trying to deal with the metaphobia. Would you say you have like safety behaviors, things that you do? Like, what do you do if you feel nauseous or
1: you get yeah scared? I would feel. I I do think I have some safety behaviors. Um, one of them is a heating pad. I like heating pads on my stomach if I feel sick. Um, So I always, you know, I'll travel with one. And there's like a, I have an adapter in my car so that I can plug a heating pad into my vehicle and use it. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want reassurance from my husband all the time. Mm We are very close Mm -hmm. and he knows all about what I'm scared of. And I want him to Mm -hmm. sit by me and, be awake with me if we're in bed, um, tell me I'll be okay. Um, yeah, little things like that. Sometimes relying on medication like Tums, but that's, I've gotten a lot better about that. Um, okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Lots of people have, um, I think David Russ and I, when we did our new website, we have a, um, a list of safety behaviors. It's actually, And this is the website at ametophobia.net, which is resources. And there's, if you go to the menu um, on info, one of the things says handouts. It's not a very good title, but one of the handouts is a list of safety behaviors you can just kind of go through and check off. So everything you've told me is on the list, which means, you know, very common um, and there are lots more on the list as well and people it's funny some people are like i have to have cold or ice you know and Mm -hmm. other people have to have a heating pad for the same feeling basically or you know tums and all sorts of different over-the-counter medications sometimes prescription medications people rely on so and if you go into treatment one of our goals is that you do away with all of those safety behaviors by the end of treatment. So, you know, it's something to think about, you know, because people, some people can't, that are listening probably can't afford therapy. It's expensive and so on, but you can do, you can make a lot of progress on your own. But one of the things you got to do is give up those safety behaviors one at a time, slowly, gradually. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So have you ever sought treatment for your emetophobia? Have you ever gone to therapists and tried to get
1: some help? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Before I go into that, I would love to go back to the safety behaviors because I'm curious about one Mm. of mine that I didn't mention. One of mine is to research emetophobia while I'm feeling sick, not post about it, but to go to Mm -hmm. Reddit or um, Mm -hmm. even to the Facebook page and read about it. And it's like a compulsion. It's, you know, an OCD almost okay. like behavior. Do you see that? Right. In people?
0: Yes. Yeah. It's, it's on the list. It's, it's about Googling. I think it says Googling symptoms or Googling restaurants or, or just about anything really. Um, you know, just going to see if you can read anything that would make you feel better, yeah. would make you calm down, maybe hear someone else's story, read someone else's story, I should say. Um, and and that that's definitely, yeah, that's definitely a safety behavior and um, Googling your symptoms is the worst rabbit hole to go down. Like, don't ever do that. <laughs> if you're not doing it now, don't start. Because it it will always lead to either, you know, death, cancer, or vomiting, <laughs> you know? right? or any com- It doesn't, it doesn't make any difference what you're, you know, you could be researching anti-vomiting pills and, and it'll say some, some side effects are vomiting, you know, I mean, because they, it's just like they write everything to cover all their bases, you know, and one guy probably had food poisoning while he was in the study. So he threw up. So they have to write that down. Um, and yeah, there are no drugs at all that you can possibly research that won't have nausea or vomiting as a side effect, because there's always somebody, you know. But yes. but they're but they're not necessarily um, major ones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll so where on. was I wanting to go before yes,
1: therapy? <laughs> yeah. So. Oh yeah, therapy. Yeah. So I. Saw a therapist in my early 20s when my anxiety really got bad. But still, again, before I knew about a and I, you know, she focused a lot on my childhood and my trauma. Um, And I haven't mentioned I mentioned this to Anna before we started speaking, um, but I grew up in a very, very strict religious family. And at the time of me being a teenager, it was basically a cult where we really didn't um mean my my many siblings did not talk to anyone outside of our church really um and we were homeschooled, we were very isolated and um had some very harmful beliefs in the family about women especially. Um so oh my God. I had to work through a lot of that with a therapist. Um and she kind of hmm. focused on that instead of my anxiety which I understand she probably had a lot of different things to work on with me. Um, And Mm -hmm. I stopped seeing her after I met my husband. And then around that time is when I said, oh gosh, I have this emetophobia thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And I went back to a therapist a few years ago. um, I told her I had emetophobia and she really wasn't familiar with it. And her, Mm -hmm. the way that she treated it with me was the way that you shouldn't treat it, which was to tell me that I needed to reassure myself constantly that I wasn't going to throw up. Um, so really, mm-hmm.
0: no, I haven't heard that really too. Much. I thought you were going to say, she told you you needed to throw up to get over it. That's
1: that's another
0: thing not to do. Right.
1: Yeah. <laughs> no, she wanted right. me to yeah. be my own, basically to act on my compulsion to seek reassurance basically to take that compulsion to seek reassurance from others and to have myself do it to my, to, to myself. So to tell myself, it's okay. You didn't eat anything bad. You're not going to throw up just constantly, which is not true. We know that we can't say that in all circumstances and it's going to be true. Um, Sometimes you Mm -hmm. get sick. Sometimes you get food poisoning. And so, um, I learned that from her and nothing was getting better. It was just continuing to be the same. I was always scared all the time. And so I stopped seeing her after about six months to a year. And I found someone in Spokane and I had been looking forever. I had been looking forever for someone who treated OCD and someone who treated emetophobia and might be able to treat trick. And I found someone who did, okay. and I got mm-hmm. in with her this summer, and we worked for about a month and a half. And she had a family tragedy and stopped offering therapy. Oh dear! So, and she she was doing um, exposure and response prevention therapy. Yeah, um, and she was the one who officially diagnosed me with OCD, and I was just heartbroken. I I was I was in tears when she called me um, and she told me that she oh, could not yeah. work anymore because I felt that I had finally right. found someone who understood what I needed. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So since then, I've actually gotten on a wait list for someone else in my city who I discovered and I'm waiting, okay. <laughs> waiting for her mm-hmm. to uh, have a space. Right. And she is familiar with everything that I've just talked about and. Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. very well educated so i'm very excited and waiting for her call right good and if you
0: stay on the line um when we stop recording i know someone else in the state of washington that that could be very helpful um for you as well, okay. but wow, yeah, okay. Well, you're on the right track, and you know you you talk about OCD. You've mentioned um, obsessive compulsive disorder, and that is also a, an anxiety disorder, even though it's not listed anymore at, in the DSM-5TR as an anxiety disorder. It's got its own little section. But emetophobia is somehow related to OCD. I was just reading. Somebody asked me to look up this certain therapist. Turned out to be a hypnotist in the UK, I think in the UK. And one of the things on her website was myths about emetophobia. And I was like, okay. And one of the myths, she said, was that emetophobia... Is related to OCD or something, or was OCD. I was like, no, 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 that is not a myth. <laughs> That's no, it's like, not. quite the opposite. In fact, I can give you the study, it uh, was done by David Beale and um, and some other people where he it was so evident that emetophobia. And OCD are related. That he almost he suggests at the end of the study that perhaps emetophobia is even a subset of OCD. It's actually a type of OCD. So he hasn't gone with further research into that. But um, in our book that's going to be coming out next to April, um, David Russ and I explored that you know, we kind of did a diagram of OCD and emetophobia. It's like emetophobics high on the OCD and low on the OCD. So some emetophobics have a lot of OCD symptoms and some have very few, but but still the obsession, the obsessing about it, constantly having it in your head, which is why reassuring yourself probably doesn't help at all, right? right? Now You probably discovered that. That just... Uh, With someone with OCD in the brain, that literally just goes around in a loop. It's supposed to go in and over somewhere on a neural pathway, but it doesn't. It just goes back and back and back. So you just, yeah, I'm doing these hand gestures on a podcast again, (laughs) but uh, Sierra knows what I'm doing. (laughs) But anyway, loop, it loops back and back and back. Um, It does. Yeah, so it's really curious. You know, one of the things I... I, I say to my clients sometimes, you know, you can say in your head, usually the worst doesn't happen, but that's all you can say. You know, usually the worst doesn't, usually you are worrying over nothing and you won't throw up, but there is a sense of uncertainty and living with that and learning how to cope with it is a big piece of the puzzle to get over emetophobia, that we cannot be certain and metaphobics want to be certain. I want to know 100%. I am not going to throw up from that's why you're googling stuff, right? Usually,
1: um,
0: and and you can't you'll never find something that says, Oh, these are your symptoms. Well, 100% sure you won't vomit, however, yeah, you're not going to find that you know (laughs) online. So, absolutely, OCD and emetophobia.
1: You know, I do also want um, to add that, do you want to say- that the, the, the trichotillomania mm-hmm. is also very closely related to OCD. Yeah. So they're all really yes, kind of it this, is. this yeah. area. And I think discovering yeah. that I had OCD tied them all kind of together in my head. And I felt, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know, I felt a little bit less like someone who had all these things wrong with her. And instead had the this kind of mm-hmm. OCD type anxiety yeah. that it shows up in different ways and it kind of helped me accept that I'm not just this person with all these little things wrong, but I exactly cohesiveness to it.
0: Right. And I've seen that on some of the, some of the other Facebook groups where young, sometimes teenagers and they're like, I just got diagnosed with OCD. Now I've got two things, you know, they're upset that now they've got something else. Well, it's not something else. It's the same thing. You know, you've been diagnosed with this thing that we call, um, yeah, anxiety. Um, it is repetitive behaviors. Repetitive behaviors, like trick, are the compulsion part of it. And the repetitive thoughts are the obsessive part of it. So sometimes you get obsessed with, like when I was a kid, I had to flick light switches on, off, on, off. I don't know how many times, but it had to be a certain number of times. And I would, think about that obsessively and do it, you know, and then had this compulsion to do it. So, yeah, it, um, I, I just think that you're an incredibly courageous person having come through, first of all, this terrible religious cult-like upbringing that you are, you know, alluding to. I don't, did you want to say anything more about that? There may be other listeners that are stuck in something like that.
1: Yeah, I don't mind. Um, I think it's interesting um, having come from that kind of um, environment. And my family was Christian. A lot of people would ask if we were Mormon or Catholic, but we were actually uh, mm. Protestant. Um, and, mm. you know, I think, I think it's easy to see, you know, you can walk in, we walk in Costco sometimes and I see big families, lots of kids and all the girls are in dresses and You know, they're all dressed very modestly, and um, I can look at them and I I relate. I relate because that used to be us. Um, That used to be me. Um, Mm. And of course, I still have my parents still have kids at home, but my parents have actually become a lot less strict. Um, They kind of were less strict when I was a little kid, the most strict when I was a teenager, and then they quickly discovered this is not helping our family at all. And they have. Kind of dropped off the strictness, um, but you know, at the, at its worst, it was really hard to feel so isolated from people and to feel so different from other other kids because um, mm-hmm. we didn't get to watch what they watched on TV or wear what they were wearing. Um, we didn't go to high school, and um, you know, I think I think it's just a long journey for people who've been in that situation to. Realize that you can be a functioning adult, and you will eventually mm. start to feel normal. And it's gonna take time, but you will get there. I never thought I would, and now mm-hmm. no one can mm-hmm. tell by speaking to me or looking at me that I grew up the way I did. Um, and right. yeah, and um, the only thing I would say to to people maybe who don't grow up around we didn't grow up in that type of strict environment is um, I think it's important for people and their children, you know, to really, I mean, I guess this applies to everything to so just be nice to everyone and welcome people into mm. their friend groups who might not look like them or mm-hmm. act like them. Um, yeah. Cause I, I do remember feeling really, really isolated when I was around even kids at church um, you know. mm. I don't know. It's it's such a. I'm sure there. I know there are a lot of oh, people the, out there who have gone through stuff like this. There, yeah, there are a lot. Oh yes, yes, and
0: there are podcasts about it. I'm sure. I, mean, I don't know what they are, but I've I've seen documentaries on television about um, various different kinds of cult like. So, you know, so they would not say they're cult, they don't have a name, but maybe very, very conservative religious upbringing in in um, all sorts of things. And then, you know, um, and thinking like that's traumatic for a child, it's traumatic. So you you responded to that the only way you knew how, which was with these anxiety disorders and, you know, um, just mm-hmm. getting really anxious. Um, and then to to go through... You know, um, your mom died, that is <laughs> a huge trauma. Um, it, metaphobia also looks like PTSD in many ways. It, it, we get a flashback, you know, like they talk about PTSD with soldiers and they, they hear a ceiling fan and they think it's a helicopter. You know, this is what you see on Grey's Anatomy or something, <laughs> you know, these shows, but really it's not. It's not always like that. It's like you you have a somatic flashback. So anything, when you start to feel nauseous or something, your whole body flashes back to that traumatic time in your life, and you're absolutely mm-hmm. terrified. It is just so frightening. It's like you're about to fall off a cliff or something. You know, um, it, desperately terrifying. Uh, I think a lot of therapists, and we do have quite a few um, listeners who are therapists if if they only knew how frightening this was I think they might be a little more understanding a little more you know people come to me because they're like well you've been through it but honestly there's some great therapists out there that haven't been through it and you shouldn't have to go through something in order to help other people you know Mm -hmm. uh, with it although Although it is a thing, but well, Sierra, I think that you have um, your courage and your tenacity, your perseverance in life is just going to be a wonderful inspiration to our listeners. And I thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me.